0: Welcome to the Indian Science Show. I'm Turtle. And I'm Annie. And this is a podcast where we bring Indigenous worldviews and Western worldviews into conversations about science in Indian country and also the rest of the world. But today we want to focus our conversation on this idea that we've been talking a lot about lately, being Indigenous in the modern world. And I know that we both agree we're definitely not experts on this topic Mm -hmm. And I'm not totally sure there is an expert simply because every community is different and the diversity present in indigenous communities around the planet is impossible to boil down to just like one simple set of rules or principles or one philosophy of some kind. So we really want to stress that, that this is exactly what we're doing. We're just two grad students mm-hmm. sitting together having a conversation And we really feel like, although we can't speak for all indigenous people, we definitely learned a lot of tools and different ideas that make a lot of sense and are really relevant to young people in the modern world. So we thought it would be a good idea to share our experience, Mm -hmm. especially over the last year in grad school. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. So I think we finally have settled down after finishing the semester driving over 2,000 miles back here, that we kind of wanted to really kind of sit down and tell you guys what we learned throughout the last 10 months while being in grad school. Okay, so I don't know about you, Turtle, but it took me a long time to kind of wind down from this last year of school.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I I still feel like I'm kind of at that tail end of trying to ground myself and wind down. Yeah. It's, it's, It's tough. I didn't, and I'm pretty good at this usually, but I had no idea how tough it would be because this is mm-hmm. the longest amount of time at once that I've spent away from my home.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I went away for school, but you stayed around here, so mm-hmm. you're not definitely not used to it like I am.
0: Yeah. How long were you gone when you went to Hawaii and Haskell?
1: Uh, Hawaii wasn't that long, but Haskell, I was there for five years. Where wow. I, would, I would come back Dang. for yeah. Christmas and I would come back for powwow. Those were the two times of the year I would come back. So I'd go six months.
0: So yeah, you're pretty used to that kind of a schedule. Yeah. Six months and then you come back and visit and reconnect. Yep. I'm definitely not. I've had <laughs> really cool adventures that lasted two months or more. Mm-hmm. Sometimes even really short ones that just like a week or two weeks. And I've had a lot of those, but I've, but I've always kind of just come back and spent most of my time in Montana yeah. so
1: I mean I always tough. definitely find myself being drawn back to Montana I think that's why I really really like this program because we were able to choose where we wanted to do our research and of course I like wasn't gonna pass up that opportunity to work here on the Flathead reservation where um, we can really use the tools that we have learned throughout this year into kind of a new program and a new understanding towards well, what I'm doing is more conservation biology, and and how you can integrate traditional ecological knowledge into your research, and it doesn't just have to be like one field of science that you look at.
0: Oh uh, yeah, yeah, I really like that holistic vision that this whole program is built on, and I mean it makes sense. It's called sewing synergy. Mm-hmm. It would make sense <laughs> that you got to kind of draw. Things together that may not seem to have anything to do with them each other at first. There's no way to get around our holisticness, uh-huh. uh, just as a species. But uh, I'm not totally sure where I was bringing that line of thought. <laughs> That's the hard part about this program too, is yeah, because we're ha- thinking in all these different directions. It's we got to constantly bring ourselves back to. <laughs> Kind of like, reality what? yeah
1: yeah I mean that was the hardest part I think of this whole entire program was I had so many big ideas that I wanted to do and Robin kept telling me she was like you need to have a smaller idea yeah <laughs> she was like you have one field season and you need to narrow it down and I was like I can't I want to do like so like I see the bigger picture of life and it's really hard for you to kind of like we we do this idea of this telescope microscope where the telescope is like the really, really large picture and then you have to narrow it down into like a microscope lens. And I always struggled with that. In our cohort meetings, I like had such a hard time narrowing down even words. Like it was, it was hard.
0: Yeah. And we seem to have spent a lot of time on that word traditional. Mm-hmm. And whether that is suitable or even an accurate word to use when we actually talk about that phrase, traditional ecological knowledge. And I honestly, I mean, it's a nice catchphrase, but semantically and just the definition of the word, it doesn't really seem like it actually captures what we're talking about when Mm -hmm. people say traditional ecological knowledge.
1: I know that we had certain ideas that we did want to bring up a full episode where we did talk about traditional ecological knowledge. And so I had brought that up with my dad when he asked about what we were going to be recording about and I was like, traditional ecological knowledge. And he was, uh, he was like, I have no idea what that is. <laughs> and so yeah. I know there's going to be certain people who do understand what TEK is, but there are going to be other people who really have no understanding of what TEK is, even though in indigenous communities, TEK is used on a daily basis. Yeah. And so I think we're just going to kind of give like a, pretty much the definition that is used in in many research papers that I know that I've read. And it's um, one of those principal definitions that is, is pretty consistent with the, def- the definition of TEK. Um, so it's by Burkes and it is the cumulative body of knowledge, practice, and belief that is handed down through generations by cultural transmission regarding the relationships of all living beings with one another in their environment.
0: Yeah, and and he goes on to say that T.E.K. is an attribute of societies with historical continuity in resource use practices. By and large, these are non-industrial or less technologically advanced societies, many of them indigenous or tribal, end quote. And this definition was coined by, what is it, Fikrit? Fikrit? I'm not totally sure how to pronounce this guy's name, but it's Fikrit Berkes or Berkes. yeah. And it was in 1993. So, although, like Annie said, just got done saying, this knowledge is practiced on a daily basis in indigenous communities, but it really it extends eons into the past mm-hmm. through our ancestors. So, that's what he's talking about when he mentions that it is transmitted through generation the generations and it regards relationships of all living beings not just people.
1: And that's how I know that my dad does understand what TEK is because a lot of the knowledge that I have known was him telling me stories when we would be driving around the reservation and teaching me things. Yeah.
0: So he knows Same what here. It, yeah,
1: so he knows what it is but he's just like never heard that kind of definition before.
0: Yeah. And I think that's a really important point because the words that we use are not only important but because we're speaking English oftentimes there's a certain level of ambiguity mm-hmm. that comes with the words because they can be used in a lot of different contexts and with different definitions and that makes it really hard to define something like this that's inherently so fuzzy to begin with
1: yeah definitely
0: so although this is this is like the first definition that we have in the literature there have been projects and research going on in this area for decades, mm-hmm. not just since the 90s. But yeah, that's that's when Mr. Berkus decided <laughs> to actually publish research yes. on it and coin a term and actually define that actual phrase. Nowadays, there's lots of different...
1: <laughs> yeah, lots of different kind of... <laughs> there's so many. ...definitions for T-E-K. And uh, I think using the word T-E-K is something that throughout this entire year of grad school like like turtle had said earlier was it's a word that we didn't fully think it should be there so i think that we started using indigenous science
0: yeah and really just the dissecting that we did as a cohort but also with these other students that were in these classes yes which was a really a blessing in disguise from my perspective Although they weren't raised with indigenous worldviews or practicing a tradition necessarily, except for maybe the ones within their family or the larger American culture, they had a lot to offer and a Mm -hmm. lot to say about this. And even when what they didn't say or how they said what they did say taught me a lot at least about how people of European descent or... "Quote unquote," the non-indigenous people, and the reason I say "quote unquote" is because I don't really like that term "non-indigenous" either. I mean, for a lot of the same reasons, it's there's that ambiguity in English that allows for different connotations for one word, and it's simultaneously a strength, though, because mm-hmm. that'll also allows us to change what we say and rephrase things. Mm-hmm to fit the audience in a way that a lot of other languages may not be so well suited to. Maybe that's like an artifact of English being exported around the planet as it's become adaptable, more adaptable. But in doing so, it's become so much more difficult to actually communicate using this language.
1: That's kind of my idea of
0: why I think (laughs) English sucks. But also, it's beautiful at the same time.
1: Yeah, well, isn't that kind of... I feel like I have read somewhere or someone had told me that English is the hardest language to learn.
0: Yeah, I've heard that too.
1: And it's it's very understandable because we have very shorthand words or interchangeable words that mean multiple things. And it's very hard to understand. And I think that's why it's super important that when you are doing any kind of science project, I'm going to talk about science because that's currently what we're doing. And so when you have any science project, any research it's really important that you do include two worldviews and you include everybody that's going to be affected with that research project that you're going to do. So everyone needs to be at the table. And so I think that kind of ties us back to our intro when we talk about bringing indigenous science and Western science Mm. together and like really, how can you combine those worldviews into like a single research project?
0: Not only is that the strength of our program, but it's also the, I wouldn't say weakness, but maybe it's the challenge. The major Mm -hmm. challenge we have is to do that when the reality is, is you can only ever function with one worldview Mm -hmm. because if you, even when you work or engage with another worldview, you're still interpreting it through your worldview.
1: Yes, that's very true. And I think people don't understand that. I think when people like think about looking at two worldviews, they forget that your own biases that you have from whether it's how you are raised, like where you come from, your own like political worldviews, like it's always going to blur another worldview that you look
0: at. Hmm. I totally agree with that. And that that gets me thinking of this other podcast that I really like to listen to called The Art of Charm. And one of their catchphrases that the host has, uh, Jordan Harbinger is his name. He says, we... I have really strongly held opinion, or no, I have really strong opinions, but loosely held. That's what hmm. it says, really strong opinions, but loosely held and that what gets me thinking about that is this idea of using your worldview to interpret another worldview mm-hmm. and then how you said it, actually being aware of that, yeah, and from my view, that's a really powerful tool to be aware of it. And recognize that that's what these are. They're like sets of tools or almost sets of lenses that we view reality through. That's our worldview. And I I would hesitate to call it one lens. Because at any one point in our life or at any one point even during the day, depending on how we feel, what kind of belief system we're operating off of and all this stuff, and what culture we're engaged with, Mm -hmm. that all plays a role in how those lenses actually play out in the world. And that's the way I see these different worldviews, whether it's a Western worldview or an indigenous worldview, is there different sets of tools that we use to interpret reality. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it's almost like you can say, hey, man, can I borrow your hammer? Or, uh-huh. hey, I really need a Phillips screwdriver, but I, my tool set doesn't have one. Do you, could I borrow yours for a while? But always giving that tool back. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of, I think the major point that I got out of this program was that we can bring these worldviews together, but I don't think there's a whole lot of long term value in actually integrating them. Because in that sense, you're creating a new worldview. And once that worldview is created, it's no longer necessarily going to benefit from the uniqueness of having those worldviews separated. Does that...
1: Well, I feel like, yeah, I I understand. Like, yeah, I, I definitely yeah. agree. Like, once you reach that, it's like a new lens. But I think as humans, being the the type of people that we are, and our ancestors were, like, we have adapted and we've evolved. And so, I don't know if I consider it like clear cut like that. I think it's just like evolving your like own personal lens, like every time you learn something.
0: Yes, yes, and that's. Ex- I think that's exactly what the point I was trying to make is. There's, it's really not two separated worldviews, mm-hmm. and there's not two distinct worldviews yeah. that we can separate all humans into. And like I said at the beginning, there's so much diversity, and there's no way for us to speak for all indigenous people. Mm-hmm. And th- that's actually a pretty small percentage of the world population. Yeah. <laughs> so when we actually factor in everyone else and their worldview and how diverse that is, then it really truly becomes impossible to actually say there's this worldview and then there's this worldview and you're either this one or that one or in between the spectrum. But what you're hinting at when you're saying that idea of adaptation and how Mm -hmm. it's really built into indigenous cultures is that the truth of worldviews is that there's not one or two or even three, but there's an infinite number of worldviews and it's constantly evolving Mm -hmm. depending on our environment, what kind of collective subconscious we have going on as a species because we're always interacting with each other whether we're different cultures or different languages so that that's that's really trippy when you start thinking about it because then it kind of forces us to ask the question where does sovereignty fit into the picture and if we're maintaining two worldviews but bringing them together how much value is there in maintaining that sovereignty and then how much value is there in not maintaining it i guess meaning um like actually integrating the worldview is that what we want to do or do we want to have almost like a new discipline or a new almost like a new job i guess or a new medicine that certain people carry that in all in their function in society or their role is to do that, is to bring those worldviews together and interpret them for other people that are actually living a a more sovereign worldview in practice in the world, in the community. And because I don't think we can ever control it or say that we have to integrate them on a large scale and to tell people that we need to combine these worldviews and you need to do that in your community. Otherwise, it's not going to work. But really... Having a certain group of people within our communities that act like messengers between the worldviews—that's kind of how, how I see the this program turning out. That's what I see this program being, as far as its value to society is. It's going to help train those kinds of people how to navigate to how like like so many of us here how to walk in two worlds, mm-hmm. which I mean many times have we heard that growing up, but how many times have people actually broke it down how you do that?
1: Well, I mean, that's funny because my mom, after she listened to our, the first episode and I love my mother, she gave me a play by play while she was listening to it. Every single item she liked, she texted me really quick. She was like, Oh, I (laughs) like what you said there. And so we had made the comment of like walking two worlds. And so she made the comment. She was like, you walk in your own world. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, that is very true. Because she taught me to be a very, very independent, strong, indigenous woman. Because that's who she is. And so, I mean, I feel like it's just, like, how you yourself navigate in your own world. And what that means to you. And I think that people forget that when it's so hard and you see other people doing certain things and you want to be this way and you don't know how to do it or you're like jealousy or there's other things that you want from other people, but it's just like really how you navigate yourself and how you want yourself to be perceived. And I feel like that took me a long time in my life to realize. Hmm. And, um, yeah, me too. I definitely, I, I think that, understanding different worldviews is very important because if you only know your world oh my God. if you only know your worldview then you really don't understand anything else like you haven't learned any other worldview so how do you know if you can't learn something from them and I think that's what I took out of this program was it wasn't just to integrate them but it was to use the tools that are from other worldviews to increase your own worldview.
0: Yeah, that's exactly. So I mean, it's so hard to talk about this thing too. Yeah. And when you when you say that, it, you you only know that one worldview. Mm-hmm. That gets me thinking of the, another thing we heard over and over and over was this idea that you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and although that's a kind of a one of those truisms that that uh, that statement that's has to be true just because it is said the way it is. Mm-hmm. But it there's a lot of value in those kinds of statements because it gets us to realize that life is oftentimes way simpler than we like to make it, but it's never ever easy.
1: No, it's it's definitely not easy. And uh I'm gonna Talk about my favorite word real quick because it's been playing through my mind this entire show, and I was like, I'm gonna talk about this word because ah. it is something amazing to me. So, while I was in my therapeutic culture class I'm this semester, what this word is. yeah, and I oh, I, well, I've talked about it. You you know this word because <laughs> I once I found out about this word, and because I was struggling in the beginning to really understand how can I integrate both, and I think that's where I was going wrong is I was like. I need this much hard science and I need this much like traditional knowledge. And I really struggled. (laughs) I really struggled with like, what does that mean? And so, and then in this class, I heard the word biophilia.
0: Oh yeah. I remember.
1: (laughs) And I was like, what is this word? I want to know more. And I did and I learned it. And it's just pretty much how as humans, we have adapted and evolved with nature. And that's why we're drawn to nature. and. I mean, I hope one day maybe we'll do a full episode on biophilia because I know I really enjoy it because I have a very very big fear of snakes, I hate snakes so much, <laughs> and so that's what they talk about with biophilia is there's like this inclination to hate snakes or be afraid of snakes yeah. because when we were evolving with nature, people would get bit by snakes. I think that's a pretty
0: legit like, fear. Yeah,
1: it's a legit fear. Oh, no, not to Charlie. Charlie's like he has two boa constrictors and he had me hell like hold one and like i was backed up into his closet like on the verge of crying like i was like and and pray is big she's a, she's a big boa constrictor yeah and i was like oh nope i can't do it and like i was like backed up i was in his room i was like i don't know where to go
0: well, maybe <laughs> so, like... his ancestors <laughs> loved snakes or maybe yeah. his ancestors were one of the few that had great experiences and survived sneak <laughs> encounters. I don't know. But My that's family, cool though, because yeah. that kind of word gets you thinking about that stuff.
1: Yeah, and so I was just like that word like clicked both being indigenous and hard science. Hmm. In a word that really biophilia never really brings up indigenous people. Or like at least the papers that I've read, they really like haven't that. really talked about that. I like that. And so I was like, man, that's really, really cool. And that was one of our discussions that we had. And (laughs) I brought that up like right away. I was like, my favorite, my favorite reading, probably the whole semester. Maybe I'll post it somewhere so everyone can, if they want to read it, they can read it some more.
0: That's a good idea to bring up right now is a lot of these concepts that we talk about on the show are going to be pretty fuzzy. (laughs) And they're also going to be kind of specialized to the field of ecology or restoration ecology, or...
1: Conservation biology. Yeah,
0: or this idea of traditional knowledge mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So some of the more dense ideas, we'll go ahead and post links to different resources and papers that you can find, and we'll post that in the show notes. Mm-hmm. So if you're curious about that, you can go and check out the show notes, and you'll find resources for that.
1: Because we are very science on this podcast, so we're sorry.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, but one, of I'm not the, sorry.
1: I mean, I'm not sorry either. We we both love science, so that we're gonna bring up science as much as we can in this podcast. Yeah, it is the Indian Science Show. The Indian Science
0: Show. <laughs> oh, that that reminds me. um Something you said earlier about how we are really bringing two worldviews together, but specifically through this notion of Western science and Indigenous science. Mm -hmm. And something that came up over the last year was how a lot of scientists in our field of study, either restoration ecology or ecology in general, they talk about indigenous knowledge as if it's separated from science, like it's not acquired through a scientific method of some kind. And why we chose to name the show the way we did is because we acknowledge and we've learned (laughs) that that's totally not true, that indigenous people are... Some of the most effective scientists mm-hmm. that have ever existed. And in my opinion, that's one of the basis of all societies is their science. Mm-hmm. What kind of tool set they use to perceive and understand the world. Science just happens to be, or I should say maybe modern science or Western science, just happens to be the most dominant one that right yeah. now. And... That's the cool part of our program is we're challenged to and expected to, in a lot of ways, step outside of that and start bringing in other sciences. So it makes a lot of sense to um to to talk about these way in an mm. open way where we reinterpret words mm-hmm. that are a lot more relevant to our communities and indigenous people at large. Yeah, That's I, hard.
1: I think that brings up like a really good point because a lot of scientists now like they don't include like you just said that indigenous knowledge is science and so a struggle that we have is validating this knowledge and so what I've come to realize is you have to find these really western words like biophilia that have validity to them and then you incorporate that into your own traditional ecological knowledge and you'd be like this is exactly the same thing. There's validity in this knowledge because it is teaching the same exact thing. You learn the same exact thing. And one mm. of those, which I find really interesting, is the three R's that we've learned that has kind of been like ingrained in our head from day one.
0: Yeah. And it's definitely a catchy kind of a, a phrase. And that's an interesting point to make that all, a lot of these things like traditional ecological knowledge, the three R's, which are... Respect. responsibility Responsibility and
1: reciprocity
0: oh yeah (laughs) so catchy (laughs) but really they're kind of like you're getting at they're they're very because i mean they're english words and Mm -hmm. phrases and they're like western societies or the english-speaking united states at least it's the that attempt to interpret and understand this holistic view of mm-hmm. balance that indigenous people inherently have built into to our cultures so that respect and responsibility and reciprocity they're like these tools that ecology or the restoration ecologists are working with to try and understand and apply mm-hmm. that traditional ecological knowledge or the wisdom that indigenous people have about their environment and themselves and where we all fit into the larger picture. Yes. So that's the way I've seen them. And I think that's important to remember that these are just tools. They're not necessarily the end all be all of the understanding of this science. Mm-hmm. So that's cool. And it's really hard because it, it allows us to have ways of communicating, but it also Forces us to constantly challenge ourselves to think about them in different ways. Yeah, and I know you had a hard time with that.
1: Yeah, I did. Coming in from a pretty hard, like, natural science undergrad, and then kind of switching my worldview to more of a social sciencey, kind of less hard science, less worrying about the end value, has really been a struggle and. I would have never pictured my research to be where it is now at the beginning of the year. Hmm, I was either. struggling so hard that I was like, there's there's no way I'm going to be able to present any research. I'm not going to have any research proposal. But I did it, and I love where my research is at right now. And so I it just, I mean, that's why I think I enjoy this idea of being indigenous in the modern world. Is because it's really learning who you are and like navigating in that hmm. while still not losing your indigenous side, but like presenting that as the forefront of who you are and then evolving from that.
0: Yeah. It's kind of like we can be indigenous and as long as we have that grounding, that mm-hmm. foundation, we can still go out into the world. And to the very modern industrialized <laughs> world and use these tools that are there. Yep. But it's it's like the our indigeneity is the heart that guides the use of those tools.
1: Yeah, one of the research tools that I have to use is the ethnobotanical research that was done by Ron Stubbs in the 60s and then Jeff Hart in the 70s. Oh, yeah, Jeff Hart. <laughs> and one of the things that I've realized while doing their research is a lot of their ethnobotanical work that they thought included all of the knowledge that the CSKT members were giving him, but he wasn't asking all of the questions. So he didn't ask like what time certain plants were harvested. So that was never recorded. Hmm. He never gave like set amount of certain things for medicines. Like he didn't really have stories for a lot of plants. So a lot of stuff was missing. And so part of my research now is kind of filling in those gaps and, like, really understanding a full knowledge of the traditional Salish aromatic plants and how that knowledge is circulated within the community today. And it took me a long time to come up with this research idea and a lot of, like, back and forth and kind of crying moments where I was like, I have no idea what I'm going to do. And one thing that, again, my mother, who has helped me out so much this, this year, obviously um she told me she was like what is the one thing that you love to smell and I was like I told her and she told me there's a certain smell that when she smells it brings her back to some moment in time and I was like that is a really cool thought and what I've noticed is we have a lot of different programs but do we really focus on plants and like the plant knowledge And are we losing certain knowledges because they're not as important? And so I really wanted to focus on a group that really kinda didn't have any importance anymore because of our modern world, like what we live in, like we don't Mm, we we have perfumes. Food
0: from the store.
1: Yeah. So we have all this this new technology, which is great, but we also have the potential to lose this knowledge. And so my focus on aromatic plants is just that: can you remember who you are? Can you remember a moment just by smelling a certain traditional plant?
0: Wow, yeah, that's a really honestly I've never even thought about that idea before. <laughs> and I, when you first mentioned it to me, I thought it was pretty cool.
1: Yeah, it it took a long time and and a lot of back and forth with Robin and leaving weekly meetings just kind of feeling defeated on on what I'm gonna do because I was so focused on the hard science I forgot about what was
0: important yeah and uh, a part of your research is it to try and analyze or understand the that worldview that we've been talking about kind of how that affects the remembering or the interpretation of these different smells and their significance and the plants themselves i know that's kind of a big question multi-layered
1: <laughs> i mean yeah that's that's one of the things that i've really enjoyed this semester was understanding the importance of place in what a place means to you and being connected to that place being connected to land and i feel like we live in a world where the city is the place to go. You're surrounded by buildings. You never really stop to think about the land of it. And I wanted to know if if connecting to a plant can connect you to land. And can that connection help heal these generational historic traumas that indigenous people face and that we mm-hmm. face here today? Can that have a healing property? And that's why I had this big idea. Mm -hmm. And I think anyone that kind of has talked to me about my research this year has known that historical traumas have been kind of my go-to of what I want to do. Like, how do I heal it while still being in science? So my whole idea was healing through science somehow. And that's what I came up with.
0: That's a really interesting aspect, I think, of all of our different research projects that we got going is they all involve the cultural component (laughs) at some level. And that worldview, just from my understanding of it, and I'm no expert on culture or of anthropology or anything, but I've studied this stuff a lot. And I've worked in this field with different capacities over the years. And it's just been a personal driving force of mine for a long time. And I feel like culture and worldview are inseparable mm-hmm. that they, in a lot of ways they're one in the same and my research definitely reflects that.
1: Mm-hmm. And, it really uh, does.
0: That's the cool part of mm-hmm. this program. I mean, there's so many cool parts of this program. <laughs> that's another one is that we're given the freedom and encouraged to interpret our research and to involve our culture in our research. So that's a huge opportunity. At the same time, it's also a huge challenge because we're having to do that within the rigid structure of academia.
1: Yes.
0: And that is like the hard science side of it. Mm-hmm. But it's also, it's a, it's a good thing and it's a bad thing. And it's trying to find that balance in between purely objective, measuring hard science and the more interpretive, subjective side of a reality which you we cannot deny that there's a lot to the universe that is much less quantitative in nature i mean mm-hmm. some things just can't be counted
1: and i think that's what i really really enjoy about your research is like your criteria and your indicators
0: as far as measuring stuff mm-hmm. actually that's one of the main things that ecologists use to measure success for a restoration project if they want to go and restore a wetland and bring the health back to this wetland. Oftentimes they these ecologists or these restorationists are just focused on the water quality or the <laughs> different chemicals and their distribution in the soil or different biotic, like the biological makeup, what kind of fish and insects, what kind of invertebrates and stuff are living in mm-hmm. the mud or living in the water. And then there's the good old uh, plant community They that oftentimes is just purely functional in their approach. Yeah. They're just trying to use it for a certain thing to restore the soil or maybe mitigate heavy metals yeah. in the water or something of that nature. So this idea of actually taking these really hard science measured, super quantified indicators and taking them and trying to create a qualitative, yep. more subjective version that honors culture.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, man, this is definitely not something that I pictured myself doing <laughs> when I entered this program. I, right. I had my ideas of using geospatial science. I'm going to map this and create models on that. Camas. and Shove that <laughs> square peg into the round hole yes. all I want, but... I realized really quick that it wasn't going to really work if I wanted to get as much as I wanted to out of this program Mm -hmm. and be able to contribute to my community as much as I could using this tool that we're being offered through academia. So I approached it with kind of, like I said earlier about Jordan Harbinger, how I had really strong opinions, but I was trying to hold them as loosely as possible. So I'm glad I was able to do that and almost totally change my approach and what I'm actually looking at, which is to work with the community, not bring a research project to the community, but actually work with the community to to develop research around this idea of cultural indicators, but with enough reflexivity and adaptability to be able to change that if we need to, Mm -hmm. if the community really doesn't need this kind of research, actually shifting the focus of the research methodology And even the species that I might be focusing on Mm -hmm. to reflect the needs and the values of the community, not just saying, hey, I got this idea and I think it's really cool and I think we should do it. (laughs) But actually saying, hey, there's this idea that I have. It seems to be really important, but is it actually important here? Yeah,
1: That's so important. Just working with the community. I think that's great.
0: Yeah, and that it's so hard. It's so oh man, it's unimaginably hard. And I think a lot of scientists aren't really thinking this way. Like, oh no, what value am I bringing to the community first and foremost? Mm-hmm. And so that's also that's the other half of my project is not just the indicators, the cultural indicators for like an ecological restoration, but how does the this process unfold and is it effective actually going and approaching the community with this co-development approach and instead of the more colonial research agenda actually is taking a step back and saying, look, I have my ideas, but I really, I can't speak for the community and I want to offer my assistance in, in whatever way I can. And this is what I'm good at. And really just kind of putting yourself out there. So I'm including that into the writing of my research and the methodology in as as technical of a way as I can. But there's that's the hard part about it is there's not that much research out there on this in this field. It's there's some in, there's a lot of it in social science. Yeah. But as far as restoration ecology, that's a whole another story. That that's really what we're after is we're trying to restore, mm-hmm. and that's another problematic word because restore to what? That's mm-hmm. always the question. So I think a lot of the talk ended up coming around to this idea: more like we're renewing or mm-hmm. bringing back yes. these ways and and bringing them together with these modern tools to build new systems that are going to make these capitalistic industrial systems obsolete. And that that take that's going to take a lot of forward thinking and a lot of adaptability, not only as individuals, but in how we actually interact with other people. Mm -hmm. So that's why I think it's so important to integrate the community into our research and allow them the sovereignty and the agency to participate in it as Mm co-researchers. So I just want to be thankful to all the people that I've spoken to already and all of our advisors and this program in general because having this opportunity to do this in this kind of way is, Mm -hmm. I mean, it was a once in a lifetime opportunity that I'm so glad I didn't pass up.
1: Yeah, me too. I am extremely grateful. I, there were certain points where I definitely felt like I wanted to leave and I am really, really happy that I, that I stayed with it and finished and now we're here. And
0: yeah back home
1: back home back home yeah back home in Feels montana good.
0: yeah that's another thing that i was grateful for over there even but i i think going back to that notion of place and connecting to place mm-hmm. being here that i thought of your research because i that, that smell mm-hmm. the smell of being here is so different than over there it and is. it has a lot it's all about the plants yep. but I think the thing that we forget about a lot often with the plants is their roots and the soil so that it's, it's never just one thing. Mm -hmm. It's all, it's always connected to this bigger picture. And with that being said, I really want to be grateful to everyone out there listening right now and especially the young native people. I really couldn't be more excited actually because native people out there, of all ages are out there kicking ass and making so many different moves that are changing the world right now but what's cool is it i feel like it was sparked by the the youth
1: yeah yeah i'm super i agree like i am super proud of just everyone um every young just native person out there just my two sisters are both getting their bachelor's degrees which mm. is amazing, and oh, yeah. they're on to bigger and better things. So I'm just super proud, and being home and being with graduations all around us, is it's a great time to be here.
0: Yes. So I think that's a, a good way to end all of our shows is with gratitude. That's a huge part of Indian science, mm-hmm. and the, uh, our approach to this show is to in, have – this be the format of the show that's why we run on indian time (laughs) that's why we made a really we tried to make as best of an effort Mm -hmm. to introduce ourselves and where we come from as much as we could anyway we dedicated that first episode to it Mm -hmm. from here on out we'll be going every third episode we'll be on this topic this huge topic of being indigenous in the modern world but because it's so huge, we'll be focusing at each episode like this mm-hmm. one. We were talking about our experience with it with grad school and talk like kind of talking about and trying to understand and wrap our minds around yeah. T.E.K., <laughs> which is I mean, still, I, I, I like it as a catchphrase. But there's going to be a lot of change w- mm-hmm. with uh, having to redefine and understand that and use it in science to benefit indigenous people. So all these different concepts that come together are so huge and uh, they're not unrelated, but they're very far apart in their, the way, the thinking that you have to do to be able to bring them together. Mm-hmm. So we'll be focusing on different topics within in being indigenous in the modern world. So you can expect those around once a month or so, or every three episodes. And Annie, you want to tell them where they can find us?
1: Yeah, so we can be found at Facebook and Instagram. Um, Both are at Indian Science Show. That's Indian Science Show. You can also find our website, and that is www.IndianScienceShow.wordpress.com. You can also listen to the podcast, download it, subscribe to us on all platforms that have any podcasts like Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, pretty much wherever you find any podcast that you currently like to listen to, you could come subscribe to us. And also we would really, really appreciate and be extremely grateful. If you guys can leave a review, like us, share us, kind of let us know how we're doing. If you guys have any episode ideas that you guys want to hear about, we're more than happy to listen to what you guys want to do. Cause I know sometimes we might pick subjects that may not be as interesting. So if you find something that you really want us to talk about, I know that I would love to do it, and I'm pretty sure Turtle would love to do it as well.
0: Oh, yeah, definitely. I think getting feedback from anybody that's listening to the podcast is going to be one of the best ways for us to be able to not only figure out what we're talking about (laughs) a little bit better, but also bring really the best quality that we can to Uh what we actually study and bring on the show as far as the content goes
1: i know that last week we said that we were gonna kind of exit the show in a certain way but as life has happened and we have not really had a, a lot of time to really get caught up in the podcast we haven't thought about anything so nope i'm gonna say bye the way that me and my sister say bye just so i can honor them oh <laughs> okay cool i'm down all right bye